to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 10. Today we have Dr. L. Brown. She is the founder of Kinder Jam and the host of a podcast, Straight Talk with Dr. L. She's also a faculty member in the Early Childhood Education Master of Arts and Teaching Program in the American University School of Education in Washington, D.C. Dr. L. began her career as an early childhood educator in the Atlanta Public Schools, after which she relocated to Asia and taught second grade in Japan and South Korea with the Department of Defense Education Activity. Upon her return to the United States, Dr. L. founded Kinder Jam, which grew to serve military and state department families in 11 countries and 16 states. The program was founded in response to Dr. L's experience as a mother parenting a young child with disabilities. And its purpose was to promote early intervention and family engagement in the military communities. To further develop Kinder Jam and ensure the professional integrity of the program, Dr. L earned a master's in early childhood education. Later, Dr. L earned her PhD in early childhood education, early childhood special education, with a secondary emphasis on educational psychology from the George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Dr. L has authored two books and created music and curriculum for young children. Above all, she is the proud mother of a 13-year-old son on the autism spectrum affectionately known as Super Duper Young Man, S-D-Y-M. Dr. L is a long-term friend of mine. She went to Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, which sits on the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida. She also is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. We both pledged at Florida A&M in the Beta Alpha chapter. We have been friends for years. Please welcome Dr. L. Brown. Well, welcome, Dr. L. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. You have inspired me in so many ways. The first is your book you wrote. Okay. After how you lost 100 pounds in a year. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> well, that was an accidental book. I did lose 100 pounds in about 274 days, roughly 10 months. And I would get a lot of questions about it on Facebook because people were following the journey because for my best friend for accountability, because I was in Virginia and she was in Maryland, I would do these things called sweat checks so that she would know that I was actually working out after I ran with this crew called Black Girls Run. So when I would post the sweat checks, I really didn't think about other people seeing them, but other people see them and they started posting their own sweat checks. And then 
I started getting a myriad of questions about, you know, what are you doing? How did you do it? X, Y, and Z. And then a magazine asked me to write an article. And my article was like 26 tips, something to lose weight, yada, yada, yada. And I ended up turning those 26 tips into chapters and they eventually became a book. So the book was really because I'm an introvert by nature. So I like humanity. I'm not really, you know, that prone to interacting with people often. So by writing a book, I was able to, you know, kind of mitigate some of the questions. I said, hey, yeah, just buy the book because I tell all the information there. But really, it was an accidental book. But, you know, I'm glad I did it. Well, it was inspiration, especially the sweat checks, too. Oh, I certainly appreciate that. What are some tips? Everybody's gained, well, a lot of people have gained a little COVID-19, 15, whatever the number you want to call it. It's called losing weight. I'm going to be honest with you now. I don't follow the tips right now. I haven't followed the tips for some time. I mean, if we're going to be completely transparent. During that season, I was reclaiming myself. So I needed to focus on getting myself battle ready for the world because I had recently asked for a separation. And while being in the marriage, I was focusing on family, focusing on my spouse, focusing on things outside of myself. And I told my best friend that, you know, okay, now that I'm about to be single, I need to just get, you know, really clear and centered. And now that I'm about to enter into the world again as an individual, I wanted to be a woman that men wanted and a woman that women wanted to be. So that really is like a biblical fox line from like, who can play this game? <laughs> so I was joking and I told her, so I said, well, you know, I got to be fit to fight. And so for me, I'm one who appreciates options. I feel like life is about option. I was living my so-called dream life and I was about to let that go to embark on another life that, you know, was now the dream of a, a more mature woman. And I did not want to be limited by whether it be weight, stamina or what have you. So I decided to lose the weight, go back to school, get a PhD, do whatever I need to do to ensure that my options would be unlimited. So for me, it really wasn't about weight or fitness. While I did have health benefits, but it was more about reclaiming myself and getting fit to fight for life. Okay. So how did you become such an inspirational force through your book, through just your Facebook posts, through your podcast, which we'll talk about a little bit more? Well, you know, I don't necessarily define myself as an inspirational person. I think that's something that, you know, a title that others may give you. But you are. Well, thank you. I certainly appreciate it. I mean, and it does not fall on deaf ears. I really, really appreciate, you know, when people tell me that. I think above all, I'm just consistent, consistent, Mm -hmm. and I'm transparent. I don't necessarily like to use the word authentic because one of the things that, like, Seth Godin says, he says, like, you know, if we were to be authentic, we would walk around, you know, in the nude, you know, doing whatever it is that we did as babies. Because after that point, we started to wear, you know, a series of masks for personas. But I think with the mask that I wear, because we all wear them, I just think my mask is very consistent. So I'm the same in this venue, that venue, and the other venue. And I think that people gravitate to that consistency. You always know what you're going to get from me. So when I speak, you know, I'm always speaking from a strength-based perspective. I believe I can. I believe you can. You got this. And I don't think people always adopt a strength-based perspective. Um, I also believe that women are capable. 
And I think everything in my rhetoric speaks to that. And I think that speaks to people. But I think it's my consistency, like even with the weight loss, you know, people lose weight every day. I just think that the consistency of my post, the consistency of my sweatshirt, it was just like a call to action for people every day. So I think people are drawn to not only the consistency of my actions, but the consistency of my saying this is something I'm going to do and then watching it come into fruition. Tell me about your podcast. Ah, so my (laughs) podcast, that was actually a response to COVID. I train and I train in the area of early childhood education. And I generally work with service providers and parents who engage with young children. And I love it. I travel and I speak, whether it be keynotes or workshops and It was going very well. Then all of a sudden, just like that overnight, boom, it stopped. So my fear was, I don't really like to use the word fear, but my concern was whenever this blew over that people would have forgotten about me because in order for me to remain relevant, you know, I really need to be in front of people. And I was like, well, if I started a podcast, that would give me a voice, even though people weren't actively engaged in these face-to-face conventions and conferences and what have you. But the beauty of the podcast is that I found a different voice. I started out as like Dr. L, early childhood education, you know, talking about family sciences and such. And in there somewhere, it morphed into the voice of all of my personalities because it's really hard to stand in front of a mic or sit in front of a mic and talk and not have parts of your personality reveal itself. So from there, it ended up morphing to a conversation that I was having with women and I would get response from women. And there was this one podcast that I did episode about, um, sis, I'm not going to let you fail, essentially detailing an experience I had with a really good friend when I was trying to go through this pivot of what am I going to do to ensure that I can sustain my company through this pivotal, you know, an unprecedented experience of the pandemic. And from that, I got a resounding response from women, primarily Black women, who were touched, inspired, or what have you, by the vulnerability that I had there. Because, you know, looking on the outside, from the outside in, you like, you look at people, oh, she has it together, yada, yada, yada. But then to hear me speak there, you're like, oh, there was a moment of uncertainty. And I think that moment of uncertainty resonated with other women. And so because of that, I changed the direction of the podcast. I'm on break right now, but when I return, more so than speaking about early childhood education and parenting, I will just be speaking about, you know, the complexities of being a woman. Tell me about that episode, because that episode inspired me. Sister, I'm not going to let you fail. And I've noticed you've also been doing several Facebook posts with that hashtag. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened, um, I was in a situation where I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. My company, Kinder Jam, has been thriving for 12 years. And we had a preschool. We had face-to-face classes. Again, I was traveling, training, consulting. So we had a lot of things going on. And then, like, literally overnight, it's not even like it was a slow trip. It was like, boom, (laughs) the preschool doors were closed. The classes all stopped. Any speaking or training gig I had was just gone. The only thing that I still had going on 
is the fact that I teach at the university as well. So with the university, we were able to go to Zoom right away, but I couldn't sustain the living that I had grown accustomed to just by being, you know, a professor. So I was like, well, you know, I got other things to go that I got to do based on the things that I had before. And one of the things, one of the hardest things, because it wasn't about the money. It was about, I had built something from scratch and I had watched it grow. And through no fault of my own, I was watching it disappear. So I have a girlfriend who lives in Virginia Beach. I'm in Fairfax, so she's about three hours away. And she has a business. So she has a restaurant, Desmond Island Soul Grill. And so I knew that I could go to her because she was an entrepreneur as well. And it was one of those things where I needed to talk to someone else who had built something from scratch. So I went to spend a weekend with her. Really, it was just a cry. It was a cry and brainstorm. And so... The weekend served its purpose because from there, we developed the idea of my now Kinder Jam at home curriculum that we'll be releasing later this month. But I had to talk to someone who had done what I had done because they would fully understand, you know, they wouldn't say, well, just go get a job because somebody who really, really understands what it means to build from an idea to something that's working would certainly understand what I was feeling. Well, all that we ended up having, on my last day there, uh, Tabitha Brown was going to be on like Good Morning America or something like that. And Tabitha had visited my friend's restaurant, you know, before she, you know, like became really big like she is now. So she wanted to watch the Tabitha Brown segment on the television. And when we watched Tabitha Brown, she was wearing a pair of earrings And the earrings that she was wearing were earrings that were made by my friend's friend who had a little stand in her restaurant. So she called her girlfriend who made the earring like, girl, you got to turn on TV. Your earrings are on TV. And so I was so excited because my girlfriend's excited. So I said, well, who is this friend? Because I've not met the friend. And she goes on to tell me the story about the friend who made the earrings. And she said, yeah. She was a customer. It was like about a year or so ago. I was in the restaurant and it was just as the restaurant was beginning to get really popular. And one day she was the customer was sitting in eating and my friend and her associate who operate the restaurant saw an influx of people come in. And my friend was like, she was like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to serve these people? And it's just two of us. And the customer got up and said to my girlfriend, What do you need me to do? Sis, I'm not going to let you fail. And so that customer then started to work the register, take orders, did whatever she had to do because she wanted to make sure that this black woman who had built something from nothing did not fail that day. And from there, you know, the customer and my friend have become, you know, like family. So when she told me that story, it made me cry because I was like, you know, wow, you know, that's mm-hmm. deep, you know, and my theme for this year was to love. I have a theme every year. And my theme for this year was to love black women without apology. Okay. And so that was just the personification of my theme for this year. And I was like, you know, not only am I going to love black women and cheer for black women without apology, but I'm a black woman. So I'm going to love and cheer for me without apology. So 
sis, I'm not going to let you fail, then became my personal affirmation that I say to myself every morning. So when you see those Facebook posts first thing in the morning, that is my talking to myself, being my cheerleader and my, you know, I'm gassing myself up. Like, we got this, sis. I'm not going to let you fail. We done been through too much. We too smart. We too pretty. We going to work this thing out. Okay. Well, I know you mentioned before you posted that podcast that you were a little apprehensive about sharing it. Was mm-hmm. it just because of the vulnerability or what was the apprehension behind that? Well, you know, you actually recommended me to another podcast, like, girl, can I ask you something? And after doing that podcast, it was two wonderful black women. Well, before I did the podcast, we talked and they want to talk to me as Dr. L. But during the conversation, I got to feel so comfortable that parts of my personality that I didn't intend to come out started to come out. And we just had a, like a three hour conversation So at the end of the conversation, they were like, oh, my goodness, we got to have you on the show. We really enjoyed you. And I was like, well, I know I got a little relaxed. And they're like, but we like that. You know, it showed another side of you. And they're like, you know, I think your listeners would enjoy that as well. And so it was about, you know, some well-educated Black women giving me permission to just be myself. Because oftentimes, you know, that mask that I talked about, as Black women, we have several masks. And one of the ones that, you know, I wear quite often is that one of professionalism. And, you know, honest, you know, that's not who I am all day, every day. That persona that I have learned to put out there is forward facing so that I'm not seen as the typical black girl. And that's not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to wear that mask so that other people feel okay with me. So when I did that podcast, I wasn't completely there yet. I was like, is it my responsibility to wear the mask? Is it my responsibility to always present myself to the public a certain way? Should that side of me that is, you know, more sister girl, should it remain more kitchen table talk? And at that podcast, I decided, you're like, nope, I'm just going to put it all out here. And even after I did it, I thought like, ah, Does that go with the persona of Dr. L? And for a moment, I almost deleted the end. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to let it do what it do because this is who I am. And that podcast got the most response from black women. And it was a deep level response. And so what were some of your responses? So I got responses about people in their jobs. I got responses about people in their marriages. I got responses about people who had not, you know, yet been married or didn't have kids just yet. And I was just getting people coming to me in my Facebook inboxes and they were just, and also on my Instagram DMs, just, you know, sharing with me things that were really private. So the beauty of that podcast, like I said, if I never do another podcast again, which I will, but that podcast has paid for itself because with that, I had the Holy Spirit speak to me one morning and I was, you know, laying down, I got up and I was like, you for real? And the Holy Spirit like, yeah, just do it. So I wrote a Facebook post because there were so many women that were contacting me after that, since I'm not going to let you fail podcast. And the post was like, Look, I'm up every morning at like five in the morning. 
if you want a non-judgmental ear and a tight lip to talk, you know, to, you can reach out to me and we can talk at like six in the morning. I was talking to a black woman at 6 a.m. every single morning. And the beauty of that was that I had some very, very beautiful conversations. But on that Saturday, I talked to a young woman who was living out of the country. And she Mm -hmm. called me and we talked about, you know, her experience of listening to Sis, I'm Not Gonna Let You Fail. And during our four-hour conversation, I was telling her about the result of that meeting that I was doing, you know, oh, I'm going to now do my curriculum as a at-home curriculum. And she was like, do you know what I do for a living? And I was like, well, no, I don't. And she was like, well, I'm in product development. And from that meeting, I got someone who helped me move my product from an idea to a concept to design the boxes, to help me with fulfillment pricing, presentation, and she gifted me with that service. And then we have a professional relationship beyond that now. But from that moment of being vulnerable, not only with my girlfriend, but then with the world, I gave someone permission to come into my life and help me in a way that would move me forward during this season. So that even speaks further to what I talk about, about you know, opening yourself up and taking off the mask when, you know, establishing your village because she had a spare key. That's what she does for a living. And now she was able to walk me through a process that would have been really cumbersome for me to figure out on my own. Well, that is a blessing from you just listening to the Holy Spirit and giving of yourself. God bless you Mm -hmm. with your new contact. Tell me about spare keys. I was going to ask you that anyway. Ah, So well, spare keys, those are the things that, you know, your God-given talents, your gifts, not necessarily your livelihood, the thing that you make your money from, but it's just the things that you do really well and they come with ease. Or it could be even people that you know. It's a resource that you have that you can easily give away and you wouldn't miss it. And that's why I call them spare keys because I feel like we're walking around with keys in our pockets that can open doors for other people that if we gave them all away and we put our hands back in our pocket, there would be more spare keys there because those are things that we just do easily. So I feel like when you have a village or what some people may call their network, you have access to all of these people's people with all of these gifts and talents that can easily open doors that you need opening. So that's the beauty of having a village, a collective community. But with that being said, you're also walking around with spare keys in your pocket. So this a reciprocity there. So I will give my spare keys and someone will give me their spare keys and it continues to elevate your entire village. Tell me about the importance of lifting black women up. That's why that episode spoke so much to me because especially in times of COVID, everybody's socially distancing, mm-hmm. isolating and especially strong women don't want to show their vulnerability and everyone is having issues from the strongest person to the weakest person. And I think it's more important now than ever that we lift each other up. But I find a lot of women don't want to share that aspect because they Mm -hmm. don't want to feel weak. They don't want to feel vulnerable. But I think collectively, when we share our strengths as well as our weaknesses, we're better as a community, as, as you were saying. So how do we as Black women do better about that whole process? 
Well, I don't know if I'm qualified to say how we do better, but I can speak about my personal experience. And if someone can glean something from that that can help them, then wonderful. I was working on my dissertation earlier this year and late last year, early this year. And it revealed something to me that I had not even noticed as a Black woman. So my dissertation was about turning points and trajectories. So essentially saying that every woman in life experiences transitions. That's movements from place to place. Some of those transitions are really big and they're what we call turning points. So I was looking to see like how do turning points shape the trajectory of women. And the women that I was looking at were women who parented young children with disabilities within military communities. But, you know, in the analysis of all of that data and looking at these other ladies' turning points, one of the things I realized that some of the women had a more challenging time when they were going through their pathway of life, largely because they didn't have really strong external supports. So they were isolated. And to help you understand the demographic of my study, I only had one African-American woman in my study. The majority of the women in my study were European-American. And so I was really sad for some of their experiences because a lot of things that could have been easily navigated were challenging for them because they did not have a support system. So it caused me in my analysis period to think about my own life and my own trajectory. And I realized that, you know, while I had not been dealt the best hand in life, that I've always been able to land on my feet because at every pivotal moment in my life, there was a black woman, a -hmm. black woman or a group of black women who were like, sis, we're not going to let you fail. Like, dust up. You trying to get a divorce here. I'm a lawyer. Let me go to the JAG office and say this, this, and this. Wait, your credit look like what? Because everything was in his name. Okay. I'm a commercial banker. You do this, this, and this. Whatever it is that I could not do on my own, there was always a black woman that stood in the gap. So with that being said, I then realized that while In my view, I was thinking that I was in the society where I had all of these people who were lifting me up because I've not lived in communities where there have been predominantly black since college. So I really thought that, well, that's not true, since Atlanta. So after 2000, since 2000, I've not lived in communities where I've been around predominantly black people. So I always thought my friend circle was really diverse, which it is. However, my support system is Black women. And when I realized who my support system was, I then realized where my loyalties needed to go when offering support as well. So I would suggest to, like, I can't tell someone how to be better, but I would make a suggestion of just going through those times in your life when you really needed support and just ask yourself who was there. And if the people who were there were black women, you know that that's a community that you need to give back to. Because chances are, if black women were there for you when you needed it, then you've been there for black women when they need it. And we need to continue to be there for each other when we need it. Because no one understands our stories the way we understand our story. And I'm going to tell you something else. Can't nobody gas you up like a black woman. A black woman gives the best compliments a black woman will lift you up, girl. Let, what you talking about? Oh, girl, you are fly. You are tough. Oh, get the people what they want. You better work. <laughs> we give the best compliments. 
oh, that knucklehead, and I'm using the PG version. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. trying to hold you down, girl. Mm-mm. You was bad when you met him. You were bad after yours. Black women know how to gas each other up because we got to hold on to each other because, you know, the rest of the world, they don't know our story. They don't know our rhythm. They don't know our blues. That's true. Tell me about your concept of the village and the tribe. Okay. Well, the village and the tribe, my village, again, is my network. And it has expanded through my life. So, like, when I first started out leaving you know, home and I, cause I'm from Ocala, Florida and I went to FAMU. FAMU became my first village. You know, it was a group of like-minded people and I've held on to relationships from FAMU to present day. And then from there, you know, like we both pledged the right. chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority yes. Incorporated. <laughs> that became my second village. And so then it narrowed itself. And so as I grew and developed as a woman, when I was at those different pivotal stages of my life or transitions in my life, you know, I acquired villages that were like-minded. So that was people who were like-minded who helped me get through those periods of life. So my mommy village, and then later on, it became, you know, my military spouse village. And then, you know, it ended up being my parents of children with disabilities village. And so essentially a village is your network. There are like-minded people that you have been with through periods of your life and you've held on to. My tribe is a little different than a village. Like my tribe started out like my village is essentially people who were once my tribe. So when I first got to FAMU, FAMU was my tribe. They were the people that I was most like. Then when I pledged Delta, Delta became my tribe. FAMU became my village. Then when I became, you know, a mom, moms became my tribe and Delta became my village along with FAMUans. And then you know, so forth and so on. So now my tribe are the people in the world that I feel most connected to. They aren't necessarily my friends. They are the people who I understand most and I would feel the safest with. And that collection of people will be parents of children with disabilities. My own son is on the autism spectrum. So with that, I feel if I were to walk into a room and there were someone from PMU, someone who's a Delta someone who is a mom and someone who is a mother of a child with disabilities, I would immediately gravitate to the person who has a child with disabilities. One, because I really understand her rhythm and I really understand her blues. So I would seek to not only find comfort in her, but I would seek to comfort her. And if you want to think about it in terms of marginalization, like also you know, my empathy goes to her in a deeper way because I understand all the ways in which her child has been marginalized. And, you know, as a mother, I can't really separate the conditions of my child from the conditions of me. So I know her Mm -hmm. pains. And so that's what a tribe is for me. So they're the people that I relate to most easily, the people who I seek to protect or the people I seek to advocate for. Okay. If you were to give your younger self advice, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> Don't do it, girl. <laughs> run, girl, run. <laughs> you know what, though? I mean, really, though, to be honest, that is one that I think about often. Because mm-hmm. even though my first inclination would be run, girl, run. Don't do it. He ain't who he say he is. Oh. <laughs> My biggest blessing came from my greatest mistake. Mm. 
even with that, I could not undo my marriage. Wow. It was unbelievable. I wouldn't have my Ricky too. I wouldn't have my baby. And so if I didn't have my baby, I wouldn't have my company. So every good thing in my life has flowed from my baby. So mm-hmm. by becoming a better person, becoming more relatable, my, you know, I told you, like, I don't really like people for real, but my, I don't, you know what I'm saying? I don't believe it though. <laughs> they drain my energy. But... So, and I have to recharge. But one of the things when giving birth to Ricky too, and then afterwards when I discovered that he had developmental delays or characteristics of developmental delays. I needed a village. Like I didn't seek to define and build a village, even though I had one in the past. I don't think I recognized. I don't think I gave them the respect that they deserve. I didn't really start giving villages the respect that they deserved and understood that I wasn't doing it alone until I became a mother because I wasn't going to rely totally on my resources because I wanted to make sure my baby was okay. So then I became humble enough to ask people for help. I don't think I asked for help before becoming a mother, but I wanted to make sure that my baby had everything that he needed. So therefore I was reaching out, not for me, but for him. So with that said, the advice I would give my former self would have to be whatever you do, don't let go of your own stuff because What I foolishly did, there is, you know, a saying that my grandparents used to tell me all the time, you know, find a good man with a good job and good benefits. And there are variations of that story being told to women from young. And while I was overseas doing well financially, working as a teacher, doing something that not only did I enjoy doing, but I did very well. When a man came along and was like, you know, quit your job. I want to take care of you forever. In my mind, that was winning. And so I relinquished all that I had because that was the gold ring. And what I realized then, it was difficult to undo that once you make that type of contractual agreement with someone. Because, you know, when you give someone, and I don't want to use the word power, but it really is some type of power. You know, they buy the clothes on your back, the drawers on your behind. They buy everything. And after a while, sometimes people can forget, you know, that you were a whole person prior to meeting them. And with that, it gave him permission to do things, you know, and he was able to rationalize that. Yeah, well, I'm taking care of her. I'm giving her everything she wants and yada, yada, yada. So I can go out and do X, Y, and Z. And what made that problematic, not necessarily what he did, because that's his, that's him and his God. But what made it problematic was that I couldn't walk away easily. I didn't have options. And one of the things I started by saying is that, you know, I feel like I should always have options. A woman should always have options. I was trapped. You know, when you don't have a job and you're a stay at home mom and, you're accustomed to a certain lifestyle, you have a child to think about, you know, it's not as easy as saying, you know, I'm not going to do this with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, at least it doesn't seem to be that easy. Not, it doesn't seem because you don't have any options. You can't just walk out, right? Exactly. It's, exactly. Hard it's hard to. So it wasn't until the point that I got to, I could not take any more, that it was really a choice between me or him. 
that my younger self actually spoke to me and was like, you know, girl, when is your self-respect going to kick in? And I literally said that out loud on a phone conversation that we were having. He thought I was talking to him. And I was like, when is your self-respect going to kick in? And like within minutes from that, I asked for a separation, but it was hard and it has not been easy. You know, I've done it, but I had to start over from scratch. So there's two reasons why I would tell a woman to never relinquish the things that she's built. One, because it's work to regain those things. And two, you always want to be an adult in your relationship. And one thing about adults, you know, the responsibilities can be lateral. They don't necessarily have to be, you know, hierarchied. And if you could have two people in a relationship that bring their talents, skills, and assets and have them both be acknowledged, I think that's a beautiful place to be. Mm-hmm. I've not experienced that in marriage, which is probably why I have an aversion to marriage. But um, I think that if somebody can find that, that's beautiful. But don't let go of your stuff because that same stuff that you had, it attracted him to you. So keep yeah. that. If you are the bomb professional, be the bomb professional. If you are, you know, an entrepreneur, continue to be an entrepreneur. Whatever it is, continue to do that. Continue to do that. Continue to grow. I agree. And not only your stuff, but don't lose yourself in the relationship, which I've never been married, but I've done that before. And see, it is very easy to lose yourself in a relationship when you don't have your anchor. So he became my anchor. Like before, you know, I defined myself. I was a teacher. I'm an educator. I'm a this. I'm a friend. I'm a soror. All of these things that I had all these identities. And then all of a sudden my identity became I'm a wife and I'm a mother. And when you take on those identities, while they are important identities, but if those are the only two identities that you are using to validate you, you're giving someone a lot of power. Because if he decides that you're not a good wife, that's a part of your identity. If he says, you know, if he criticizes your mothering skills, that's a part of your identity. Next thing you know, you are spending your time trying to please someone because you're seeking their validation. validation. They are the largest barometer to you is whether or not you're successful. And their barometer could be skewed based on their lens, their insecurities, or their covert interests. Sure. So running a cheaper than therapy podcast, part of my mission is to interview or speak to people who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. I know you've talked about some of your obstacles as far as your business and having to transform in our COVID, this pandemic time. But tell me about other obstacles that you've overcome via as a child in college and how you overcame them and what advice would you give my my listeners? Look, (laughs) I think my life has been a tough mother. You know, it's, it's like it has not been a straight race at all. From birth to present day, I really feel like I'm playing the hell out of a bad hand. I really do. And I Mm -hmm. feel like that's the case with a lot of people of color, particularly women of color. I can honestly say that the thing that has helped me overcome have been what I call angel women. Mm -hmm. Those are women that God have placed in my life at various points in my life to guide me. And it may have been more passive. It may have been someone I watched and I was like, oh, I really like the way she moves. If I could move like that, 
you know, or if I can take pieces of her and make them parts of me, then I think that I will have better tools to navigate. So I feel like I'm a compilation of every great woman that I've come in contact with. I see the way somebody moves and I'm like, oh, I really like that. And I'll adopt some of that into my own personality. So I really say just don't be an island. Don't be an island. Be open. Be open to receiving from others. A wise man knows that he knows he doesn't know it all. A wise man knows that he has a lot to learn. Adversities will come. It's not as easy to say, you know, you got this, get through this. When I say things like you got this, I'm saying that everything that you have to navigate this is either in you or within your reach. And if something's within your reach, you know, to get it, you got to reach your arm out. Mm -hmm. To get it, you got to ask. So it's there. And I'm just saying, you know, like utilize your resources. We're all going to have problems. Things are always going to come our way. But, you know, if you don't have the problem solving skills to figure it out on your own, activate your external support. Because, you know, there are really three things that help people in adversities when it comes to resilience. And the first is personal agency. And those are the things that you have within yourself eternally, your internally, your your decision making such. Then the second is environmental factors, and that is the resources that you have around you based on, you know, the context of your life. And then the third and the most powerful is the level of external support you have. So I would say, you know, build villages now so Mm -hmm. that you can activate them when needed. So that means be a friend now, be a confident now, be a sister now. So that when time comes, it's not really from a self-serving, it's just from a common sense point. So that when time comes and the metal meets the road, you can send the bat signal up and someone will actually come to help you. Okay. So yeah, build your villages. You inspire me. Tell me about women that have inspired you over the years. Ooh, (sighs) women who have inspired me over the years. You know, that's a really hard question for me to answer Mm-hmm. Because I'm a fan of black women collectively. Okay. You know, it's not, I don't necessarily know if I can say it's one person that inspires okay. me. I just really appreciate the way black women move. Okay. And we have shared characteristics like, um, and the reason why I say this is because I didn't grow up with a close relationship to my mother. And mm-hmm. to the present day, I'm not close to my mother which is why I have these relationships with angel women. So I could look at one woman. I said, ooh, I really like the way she chooses happy, how she has decided that the life that she lives, like, so I guess I will use a name here. So like we have a sorority, Eureth. So Eureth I met when I was in FAMU and then I reconnected when we came here right after my separation. And I really like, Eureth wasn't married and she isn't married now. She doesn't have any children she doesn't have a desire to have children of her own. However, she has chosen to foster or adopt children. And she does it when the girls are a little older, like 12 and above, and she helps them navigate life and make their way to college. She is one that says, you know, I don't necessarily want to go through someone to make decisions or compromise. I like the way it is. So therefore I'm not married. And I thought that that was very brave, very brave, because a lot of times people tend to gauge their happiness by social norms. 
by like, you know, okay, if I have done what society says is successful, then I'm successful. Whereas with Yurith, she's one that just chose, I'm going to be happy. So therefore, I'm going to do the things that make me happy. And I'm going to do those things without apology. So in my adult years, a lot of what I've done, I gleaned from Yurith. How, you know, even though she's very modest, our personalities are very different. I think that I was locked into that societal norm as a barometer of success. And with her, I got permission to just say, you know, whatever makes me happy is the right thing. Whether you like it or not, I don't need your approval or validation. So that's something in recent years. And also just by being around her, she has a Ph.D. as well. And we would just be out at dinner, walking, whatever. And I would say something that she considered profound. And she was like, oh, L. Brown, you're so smart. You should get a Ph.D. You know, you're so smart. A Ph.D. would be so easy for you. And then one day we're driving to church. And I'm like, guess what? I got an idea. I'm going back to school to get a Ph.D. <laughs> but it was really <laughs> something that she had been saying to me for, you know, almost a year. So I think when I think about inspiration of women, it's more about things about their personality that I like. And I'm like, ooh, I like the way she moves. But I get that all the time. I get that almost weekly, you know, just by saying, oh, you know what? Oh, I like the way she said that. Oh, I like the way she handled herself. Ooh, that's the way you should do that. So I'm constantly looking at women. Okay. Tell me more about Kinder Jam and who would benefit from it. I know you've had to pivot and transform from the classroom to a, a virtual setting with the pandemic and who knows how long the pandemic will last. So tell me a little bit about Kinder Jam and what you see in the future. Are you going to stay more virtual or will you think you would transfer back if classroom whenever COVID or this pandemic is over, whenever that is? Well, Kinder Jam is my life's work. It started with my own son, when he was about 18 months old, I was home with him alone because my ex-husband was deployed to Iraq about 17 months. So at that age, I started to notice that there was absolutely no language in the house. When my ex-husband was there, we would actually talk for him. Like, oh, look at Ricky, too. Isn't he? Oh, he likes that. And we there was dialogue in the house, but it was really us narrating the things that he was doing and giving him words. So... When my ex-husband left, I realized that there was absolutely no sound in the house. So I went to our pediatrician and I was like, hey, you know, I think something's going on with my son. I need help, X, Y, and Z. And the pediatrician, you know, took his vitals and, you know, then looked at his eyes and his ears and his, you know, nose, mouth, heart. And he was like, oh, he's doing well. Good job, mom. And he gave me a SpongeBob sticker girl. I got in the car because, you know, I'm a teacher. So yeah. I knew what I was looking at. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. so I was mad. I was intimidated. I was frustrated. I had all these emotions going on through me. And I was like, okay, if I were in the classroom, what would I do? I would teach, evaluate, assess, and refer. So I was like, I don't have that infrastructure at home, so I got to go and create it. So I did some research, you know, like seeing how my baby learns best. And I was like, okay, well, he's a lot into movement. You know, I could hear him in song because even though he wasn't speaking, he had a cadence about the nonverbal, well, 
the non-words he would say. So I would understand some of the things he was saying about the cadence because he would mimic the cadence of my voice. So I started to teach him through like music and movement, like pantomimes and such. And I started collecting data points, like the things that he did well, the things that he needed some improvement and assistance with. And I took those notes back to my pediatrician. And through several dances, we essentially decided that we would move forward in speech therapy. And so when we worked with the speech pathologist, I then realized after her evaluation that he was indeed delayed. And that then began a further dance between myself and other service providers. Well, in doing that, I was creating this program for my son that was called Ricky Two's Time, and it served two purposes. The first was to collect those data points for him so that I could know you. It's one thing to take a cursory glance at a child. It's another thing to actually write down concrete observations. So I was taking these observational notes, but in addition to that, it was my time to pour into his love bucket, to give him my undivided attention for about 45 okay. minutes a day. Well... I started building out the backyard and all this. And so my friend came over one day to play in the backyard and she came over during Ricky Two's time. And she was like, girl, you work so hard with him. You should teach a class. And I was like, you know what? I should. So I went to the community center on the military installation. I was like, hey, I want to teach this class in my home for parents because I did everything with him. And they were like, oh, well, you can't do that in your home. You know, that would be against, you know, the base installation rules. But there's this new program where you can become an army contractor and you can offer these classes in the community center here. So I started offering the classes for like next to nothing, gave them a name Kinder Jam. Okay. And it kind of took off from there. But I didn't really realize what Kinder Jam was until other women started to respond to the program. And so my classes became like waiting lists only. So they were really popular in Monterey. And then women started to come to me who were preparing to go to other duty stations. Like they were about to what we call PCS, which is move away. Mm-hmm. They were like, hey, how did you get involved with Kinder Jam? I said, oh, I started. They're like, well, you started this? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, well, if you package it up, we would love to teach it at the next location. Okay. And from there, I thought that they were joking and Two of them moved away and they contacted me. And so my first two Kinder Jam locations outside of Monterey were in Pigeon, Michigan and Misawa, Japan. And then from there, it just kind of Johnny Appleseed where someone would take a class in Misawa and then they were going to Turkey or someone would be in Turkey and then they were, you know, landing like, you know, Alabama. And so Mm -hmm. it was really hopped around like that. And so we ended up servicing families on military and state department communities in like 16 states and 11 countries. And then I did that for a while as a licensing program. And then when I came here and I got a divorce, I decided that I needed to do it a little differently. And I then focused on getting government contracts. And I had employees that then operated those contracts by teaching families within the local community centers and preschools and such. And then I would travel and train teachers. But with the virtual world, I don't see myself going back to the way it was before. Um, I may continue to do some classes with contractors, but I do believe one that I've changed. Okay. You know, when I started Kinder Jam, I was a young mother. I was in my early 30s. And now, you know, I'm 44 years old. And 
you know, my expertise is a little different. It's sharper now. It's more developed. So okay. I do think that I'm more beneficial in an instructional position, a coaching and training position, because it allows me to touch more children. Because at the core, my belief in all that I do is that I believe that children deserve to be loved and cared for well, which is partly why Kinder Jam started to operate outside of my home, because I was like, well, if I had such a go of it as a teacher, community mm-hmm. with service providers, what might a parent without my skill set experience when they work with their children and service providers? So that's what my research is and my dissertation is like, how do we best assist parents who are seeking, you know, to increase their capacity to best love and care for their children? So I don't know. I don't know what God has in store for Kinder Jam. I do know that I'm taking it one day at a time. So this virtual space is where my mind is now because that's where the need is now. And the world will tell me, you know, where next I'll go. The world, the universe, my father, all of that. Okay. Well, any last minute words of advice for my audience? And also tell everyone where they can find your podcast, information about Kinder Jam and all your social media platforms. Well, Kinder Jam is easy, kinderjam.com. <laughs> with Straight Talk with Dr. L, that's easy too. That's straight talk with Dr. L.com. <laughs> but you can find the podcast on any of the Apple podcasts or any of your other favorite platforms. Social media, you know, I'm pretty much so, well, oh my, we're at underscore Kinder Jam on Instagram now, at underscore Kinder Jam. And other social medias, I'm pretty much just L Brown, which is my handle, just L Brown. You know, I'm, I'm pretty simple. But as it relates to advice, I don't know that I have advice for people because, again, I have to think that I was an expert in life in order to give advice to someone else. But not necessarily. I, Everyone has pearls and words of wisdom, I think. Oh, words of wisdom. Be you. Yeah. Do you. <laughs> Just really, at the end of the day, be you. Do you. Whatever it is, there is no rule book. That rule book, somebody made it up and it's fake. It doesn't exist. Do you be you. Okay. That's good advice because a lot of people are trying to mold and fit into what other people think they should be. Yeah, that's a whole lot of work. Just do you. It's only one you and the world needs the one you that you are. And if you try to be someone else, then we're operating without you and we need you. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I adore you, Spit. I love you too. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, O as in Omaha, L as in Love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
handle we o u i life l i v e we o u i love l o v e again we o u i life l i v e we o u i love thank you and please tune in again